Welcome to Sighs and Whispers, an interview podcast series about cultural history. I'm Laura McClaus Helms, the fashion and cultural historian. My guest this week is author, screenwriter, and TV producer James Fitzhound. I first came across James's work through an ad in the July 1978 issue of Cosmopolitan. Advertising his novel Dream Babies, the ad made it clear that it was just the kind of trashy showbiz novel I love. I found it on eBay, thoroughly enjoyed it, and started ordering more of his books. From a Romana clay about Jean Nidich, the founder of Weight Watchers, to a thinly veiled one about Barbara Streisand. When I started researching him, I discovered that after a successful career as a commercial writer in the 70s and early 80s, James switched to TV, writing for many of the major primetime soaps of the era, Falcon Crest, Flamingo Road, and Hotel, which he also produced for a season. I tracked him down in Northern California, and we spoke on the phone a few months ago. For him, it was the first time thinking about or discussing his early work for decades. He is the author of 18 books across many genres. Under his own name, Jim wrote literary fiction, a young adult novel, a techno-thriller, several sagas, and Ramona Clays. Additionally, he wrote three adventure novels for the Nick Carter series, two gothics under the pseudonym Janine Fitzpatrick, a novel about homosexuality as Jeffrey Linden, a trashy novel about a hair salon as J.F. Farber, and two V.C. Andrews style books as J.S. Forrester. Son of the Great American Novel, Fritz Hand's Abue, is to be re-released next year by Tough Poets Press. It will include a 20-page afterword about the novel's gestation, what inspired him, and what it was like to be a young writer in New York some 50 years ago. With such a wide breadth of work, I found it fascinating talking to Jim about his writing and research process, as well as the publishing industry of the 1970s. We also talk about growing up in Brooklyn in the 50s and 60s, discovering himself as a writer, how he went from literary novels to popular fiction to TV writing, meeting his partner 46 years in the orgy room of a gay bathhouse, and escaping show business for a quiet life. Sorry about the poor sound quality of the audio. Unfortunately, recordings from phone interviews seem to have a lot more static than in-person or Zoom ones. Share with your friends, subscribe, and please write reviews so that more people can find their way to this podcast. Enjoy. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, I've never done this before, so let's see how it works out. So you were born in Brooklyn, right? I was born in Brooklyn in 1946. I was uh, born in Crown Heights. We lived in a three-room apartment on Montgomery Street off Utica Avenue in Crown Heights, and then moved to a four-room apartment in the same building when I was about eight. I graduated uh, Wingate High School, which apparently is no longer there. It was shaped like a banjo. It was called the Banjo School. It was probably the newest high school in Brooklyn at the time. Went to the University of Wisconsin and never moved back to Brooklyn. I was also in medical school very, very briefly, but I decided uh, that was not the, uh, the career for me, much to my uh, parents' chagrin. Had you always been interested in writing? Actually, yes. When I was in grade school, I wrote a, an imaginary history of, of the people of Mars. And then I did, uh, I was a big Hardy Boys fan. So I wrote uh, Hardy Boys pastiches, you know, the Chris and Doug mysteries, the mystery of the Golden Dragon. I don't know how long they were. They were all handwritten in those little marble uh, notebooks from the 50s. By my senior year in high school, I was uh, 16, I started writing a novel. I was working in the blood bank at Downstate Medical Center. I was going to start medical school uh, in September, and I actually finished it. Uh, so I was about 16 at the time when I wrote my first book. It was called Crown Heights. It was never published, but it, it did get me to an agent. So uh, wow. uh, I guess 
was time well spent. I actually live not very far from Crown Heights. Well, very close. And so what was it like growing up there in the 50s and 60s? You know, I'm sure it was very different than it is today. It was it was mostly Jewish and a little Italian. No blacks, no Asians, uh, no Hispanics. Uh, Utica Avenue was like a five-block shopping street. It was sort of our universe. There was a big movie theater around the corner from my apartment building, and the ritual was to go there every Saturday morning for 25 cents for double feature, five cartoons, and a newsreel and coming attractions. And then the, the, the Great World beckoned uh, five blocks away, uh, Utica Avenue uh, subway station. Uh, five beyond that was Prospect Park and uh, the big library there. My aunt lived across from the uh, Brooklyn Museum, so one of my first attempts at uh, independence was to insist that I could take the subway myself when I was 11 years old. And so I did for 15 cents and visited my aunt and then went to the library and, uh, and the Brooklyn Museum. It was a very... Uh, safe, comfortably lower middle class neighborhood with apartment buildings and uh, what in New York they call two family houses. Everyone knew each other on the street. Everyone knew each other in the apartment building. It was a comforting childhood. You know, it, it wasn't a childhood uh, like kids go through today. There wasn't such things really as bullying and uh, people didn't weren't fearful for their lives and there was there was no great, uh, no, no crime significant. It was it was a nice place to grow up. What did your parents do? My mother uh, did not go. My mother had been a bookkeeper and mm-hmm. uh, basically supported her family. She had uh, an older brother and then three younger sisters. And her father was a cutter in the garment industry. And he worked seasonally. And her mother was uh, basically an illiterate woman from Ukraine. And she married late in life. She had me when she was 40. And when I was about 13, my brother was three and a half years older, she went back to work uh, as a bookkeeper. And interestingly enough, she ended up working for James Kahn, the actor, James Kahn's mm-hmm. uncle, who owned a meat business in the meatpacking uh, district. He uh, provided uh, meat to the restaurants, you know, high, you know prime ribs and, and prime steaks and chops and such. And she was his bookkeeper. And her entire salary uh, sent my brother to the University of Pennsylvania, and then uh, four years later, three years later, sent me to uh, University of Wisconsin. My father, the word in Yiddish is tchotchke. My father sold tchotchkes. He had a he had a uh, a van, and he made leather key cases and uh, keychains with uh, your initials on them or in little plastic sleeves or religious uh, uh, pictures. And he sold those to uh, what in New York in those days was called candy stores, uh, which uh, kind of like convenience stores today. And uh, they would set up these uh, uh, cardboard uh, displays in the candy stores with leather key cases. And uh, my brother and I worked in his little shop assembling these, uh, these tchotchkes. When we were kids, hating every minute of it, we got paid a dollar and a quarter an hour. So he was a he was a a worker intellectual. He uh, he had gone to Spain uh, to fight in the Spanish Civil War, which I'm quite proud of, and then opened this little business 
he supported his family, uh, but it was not enough to send uh, his kids to what we called out-of-town college. So uh, by the time I was 13, both my parents were working. We were very lower middle class, but he was, uh, he read the New York Times cover to cover, taught me a great, great love of books. There was always five library books stacked between Glass Eagle uh, bookends. And he read, he read uh, voraciously and taught my brother and I to read in, in numerous genres and to respect books. You know, we were never allowed to bend a spine or to turn down a, uh, uh, a page. We always had to use bookmarks. Books were, uh, were icons, so to speak. So uh, that, that love of literature, I guess, came from, uh, from him. He, he sounds quite wonderful. Um, he was not quite wonderful. I, um, he was a, a rather insensitive boo, but uh, he, uh, he had his moments. He tried. He was, uh, he was a good husband, and a decent father, I suppose. Uh, it was not a loving relationship. I was, I was always challenging him. I don't know. <laughs> I've, I've, made my, I've made peace with, with, uh, with, with uh, that a long time ago. I've always felt that uh, people who blame their lives on their parents were uh, people who didn't take their responsibility for their own lives. Uh, my parents did the best they could, and uh, I thank them for that. Did they push, were they the ones who were pushing you to go to medical school? Very much so. My brother was a physician. Among lower middle class Jews, uh, to climb the, the economic, socioeconomic ladder is, was obviously very important in the 50s, if not today. And the next step up uh, was to be a professional. And uh, I had been a zoology major. I had fancied myself... Uh, the next uh, Jane Goodall or George Schaller. I would, I would go out in the middle of the wilderness and observe uh, snow leopards and then write scientific papers and then popular books about my experiences. So I was, and I was a nature girl as a kid, always more interested in turning over a rock than, you know, than playing baseball. So uh, when I got in, I was a pre-med, and I got into medical school quite early, and they offered me a scholarship so I didn't have to live at home. And I really didn't want to go. And uh, I went to the uh, head of the Department of Zoology uh, just before Easter of my last year in college. So this is uh, 1967, I think. And he said, what took you so long? I've never met the man. And they offered me a teaching assistantship. And so I called my parents and I said, I'm not going home for Easter and I'm not going to go to medical school. I'm going to get a, a doctorate in zoology. And they and if you don't come home, we're cutting you off. And I believe them. So I came home, and my father said, I'll buy you a car. And they, and they you know, for 10 days, it was uh, uh, the full court press. Uh, so I agreed. I went to medical school. And I lived in the dorm and worked in the blood bank that summer, and I finished that first novel, Crown Heights, which was the name of the novel. And then I started medical school, and Laura... After one week, I just saw my life unfurl, like, you know, just like that cliche where you see your life. And I saw way at the end this very unhappy man. And I said, this is not for me. And I quit. It was very difficult. I had to find an apartment in New York. I had to find a job. That's the excitement when you're 20 years old. You take risks. And I started writing a second novel. And that was the novel that I sold to George Brazil when I was 21 years old. It was called Son of the Great American Novel. It was a black comedy. That's where I started. 
I guess, how did you have the sort of um, emphasis or like the, you know, the sense that you could actually at such a young age, like write a novel and get it out there, you know, have this such like a self-belief? Well, I wrote a, I wrote a novel. Very, Crown Heights was basically a buildings roman of my last year in high school. Uh, I was 10th in a class of 900 and I did not get into any school I wanted to. I was desperate to go to Amherst and I didn't get in. And I didn't have a safe school. And so the freshman year, I had to go to Brooklyn College. And it was a, an excruciating disappointment because I had to live at home. And we were living in a four-room apartment. My brother was a freshman in medical school. And they gave my brother the, the bedroom that we had shared. And I had to sleep in the living room on a pull-out couch. And my desk was a bridge table. And I was a very unhappy camper. I immediately applied to other schools for sophomore year. And as, and as it always happens, I got in everywhere. I got into Chicago. I got into Penn again. I got, and I got into Wisconsin and I decided to go to Wisconsin. And finally I was, I was, I left home uh, to start my sophomore year at the University of Wisconsin. I was, I had, I had skipped a year in high school. So I was very young. I was only 17 then. I graduated high school at 16. But that was a that was a horrible year, and, uh, and then after to jump four years ahead after leaving medical school, uh, I had to get a job, and uh, I, I was a social worker in the city of New York for two years while I was writing a novel, and then I was on a quiz show and made five thousand dollars, which was a, well, a shitload of money in those days, and I quit being a social worker and decided I'm going to be a full time writer. And lo and behold, uh, less than a year later, uh, I sold my first novel. I was very, very driven. My ego was my career. You know, to be gay in, in uh, 1975, you know, most people were incredibly closeted. I, I didn't tell my parents until I was 30. And I didn't want my identity to be my sexuality. My identity was I was a writer. And I was driven to succeed. And so every night after I came back from social work, I made dinner. I read, an, I read a Sherlock Holmes mystery, uh, you know, propped up while I ate dinner. And my mother was providing me with very tasty meat from uh, James Conn's uncle's um, uh, business. And then I sat down and wrote. I wrote every night. I wrote uh, until I finished a book. And... Through a friend, I started to do book reports for a popular library. You know, they, they, they got so many books over the transom and they needed people to read them to see if they wanted to bid on the paperback rights. The uh, editor there, David Williams, liked the reports I was writing. And you know, I told him about uh, you know, my, first, my first book I was writing. And so I gave him a copy of Crown Heights and he liked it and he got it to an agent. And the, I met with the agent. The man's name was John Schaffner. And he said, I, I don't think I can sell this, but I want to see the next thing you write. And I had almost finished uh, Son of the Great American Opera. And he took me on as a client, and he sold it after five submissions to George Brazilla, which was uh, a very uh, prestigious uh, literary imprint. Uh, they published John and Flannery. And so I was in very good company. And uh, it was a literary novel. But you know, literary novels can't uh, 
You can't make a living on wood right now. How did it feel to become a published author so young? It was thrilling. It was absolutely thrilling. I had my uh, photo taken by Neil Slavin, who uh, who in later life became a film director and, and quite, I think, uh, a famous New York photographer. His wife uh, was uh, the dance critic for The New Yorker. And there I was, you know, a 21-year-old pisspot in a velvet jacket looking like, uh, you know, I own the world. I thought it was great. I remember going into uh, Scribner's Bookstore in New York, which was a fabulous, I don't know if it's still there, uh, and, and making sure that the book was, you know, prominently displayed, <laughs> you know, moving around from the back shelf to the front. But it was reviewed in the Times, a short review, but as adept with a rapier as a rolled-up newspaper, Mr. Frisan has some recognizable comic talent. That was uh, New York Times, 1975. I was uh, I was quite taken with myself, Laura. Amazing. It was, um, well, it was fun, you know? You know, a published book, and I got, you know, I had all these images of what a published book, I had deckled pages, you know, I liked deckled pages, or Knopf's books were, had deckled uh, pages. You know, it had a, a, a good book jacket, a good book jacket designer, and, you know, the photo on the back, and uh, I was, uh, I thought it was, well, I was ready to uh, do anything after that. I kept writing. And lo and behold, they didn't like my second novel. So here, so here I made the switch, the switch to commercial fiction. And I wrote a romantic play about Gene Knight, who was the founder of Weight Watchers. And I sold it mm-hmm. to me, Javon Books. And I sold five books of it over uh, about a five, six-year period. All romantic plays, all popular fiction. So I became a, uh, a writer for hire. I, I did everything. I wrote Nick Carter Mysteries. For, I, I did gothics. I did uh, D.C. Andrews-type pastiches. I had like six different pseudonyms. I wrote 16 different books. Uh, and... Uh, the schedule was I wrote ten pages a day, and if I didn't, if I didn't uh, get fifty pages by Friday, I worked Saturday. And every morning I started by rewriting the ten pages I'd written the day before. And so the bot, I had a, a lovely handmade uh, wooden box that some little craftsman in Brooklyn had made for me. And you know the pages start piling up. This is. You know, I print them at the end of each day. This was the days of word processors, and uh, there was no cloud. Uh, so this was the safest way to uh, make sure you didn't lose the manuscript. Yeah, it was, uh, I was a working writer. Like, uh, I loved it. It, uh, it consumed me. Uh, it, uh, I lived to do it. It's, yeah, I had a lot of gas. With those, um, you know, the sort of more sort of show business theme, but books, like how did you come up with these ideas and how did you research them? Uh, Nidich I had actually met through uh, through a friend who, who was very important in my career. He was a, uh, a business manager in Hollywood. He mm-hmm. was in heaven now. His name is Jeffrey Barr. And his, his big clients were Elaine Stritch, and uh, Charles Nelson Riley, Gene Simmons, and earlier on Constance Bennett, a uh, an actress from the 40s. And I'd had a uh, brief, a very brief romance, but really a, a 
turn into a, an enduring friendship. And he was responsible for the move from uh, New York to to Los Angeles to uh, to write for television. He had moved himself from New York uh, to L.A., and I went out to visit. And he had a lot of contacts and kept saying, you should come out here and, you know, and, and I can get you interviews for television. And, and eventually I did that. But it, but in terms of, of uh, you asked about research. I did a, uh, a big family saga, which was my most successful title. It was called Third Avenue. Sold about 300000 in paper. Uh, not, these were all paperback originals that were called at the time. And for that, uh, it was basically a story of Bloomingdale's. Uh, so I followed two families uh, from about the turn of the century until the present. So for that, I went down to Florida because part of it was uh, uh, the, la- the big land uh, boom, uh, Meisner's land boom in the 20s, and that I incorporated that uh that Maison scene into the novel. And then the last, the last uh, work of fiction I did was, uh, was published by William Morrow, and that was called Four Sisters. I had been a, uh, a great fan of aficionado of Russian literature and had read, you know, all of Dostoevsky and all of Tolstoy. I was like, oh, he's read all of Tolstoy, but yeah, I actually did. And, and Gogol. And I wanted to write a Russian novel for an American audience because I, I just love the feel of it. And that required a huge amount of research. Again, I had, I had you know, like a thousand index cards with, with uh, headings, clothing, holidays, uh, names. So it was a very, historically very accurate uh, piece of fiction, but it was, uh, it was designed for an American audience. So, it, you know, it was as much as I could make it a, a page turner. Uh, and that was the last novel I wrote before I started writing for television. Um, what was it like switching over to te- writing for television? I knew nothing about writing for television. Uh, I didn't know it. You know, I had never looked at scripts. So many of my peers in, in L.A. had, had taken, a, you know, I'd taken a class at, at UCLA in comedy or drama. I didn't, I, I didn't know any of this. I merely had an in to get an interview for an episode of Trapper John, M.D., uh, the producer was Frank Glitzman, and he had known Jeffrey uh, through uh, Charles Nelson Riley and, and Stritch, and he agreed to let me pitch a story. And so I watched, you know, whatever episodes I could of Trap with John M.D., and looked at their scripts and saw that it was sort of, you know, each scene was like an index card. And so I had a bunch of index cards. With, with a story, and I'm sitting on a hardback chair, and five people are, you know, surrounding me uh, as I'm uh, nervously uh, reading the contents of each index card. And in scene one, this happens. And in scene two, this happens. And lo and behold, they uh, they gave me the opportunity. They they said, "Go for it." In those days, there was a program for script writing that was kind of like a template. Uh, it was still word processing. And so I took the, uh, the computer store off into a Saturday morning class to teach you how to use the uh, screenwriting program. And they were in Santa Monica. And so I went down to Santa Monica and I took the class. And then I wrote the script and, uh, and they bought it. And uh, that was my first TV assignment. It was, uh, 
But it was thrilling and exciting. And also it paid so much more than fiction for so ultimately little work. And the more I did, the easier it was to get other assignments. And since the first one I did was uh, what was called one-hour dramatic, I never, I never attempted to, uh, to write comedy. Uh, that was just the genre that I was, I was in. I was in one-hour dramatic and kind of soap opera shows, uh, you know, like Dallas uh, or Dynasty. That's how it started. I, you know, I got, I got an assignment from them. I got a second assignment from them. And then I got an agent. And I started, I uh, did two episodes of a show called Bear Essence, and then I did two episodes of a show called Flamingo uh, Road, and then I did Falcon Crest, and, and the big break was a hotel, which was uh, I was on for five years and ended up uh, producing at the end. The agent had, had sent scripts to them. It was a new show, and their, their reader suggested that I come in to pitch because they liked the way I wrote older women. And Betty Davis was signed to do the show, the star of the show. And before they could shoot the pilot, she uh, she died. Hmm. So they scrambled around to find a replacement, and they hired Ann Baxter from uh, All About Eve. I think that was her big movie, one of her many movies. And so I went in 14 ideas. I, you know, I read their, their uh, they had two or three scripts already finished. I read the scripts. And by that, by that time, you know, I had done like eight or nine scripts, so I was familiar with the format. That it, it was now coming up with a story that they liked. And Hotel had, had basically two stories, an A story and a B story. Uh, the A story involved guest stars, and that was called Popcorn Casting. Aaron Spelling was the uh, producer. And the B story involved the cast of the show the, who appeared in every episode. So I, I went in and I rattled off 14 uh, story ideas, of which six of them they had already come up with themselves, as I said. And the others just didn't work for them. And they said, can you come back with more? I said, sure. And uh, I left the office and the head writer actually grabbed me by the elbow and pulled me into his office and he said, they're going to hire you. I went back the next week with six more story ideas and the second one, that's it, we love it. That was a big turning point in my career and a very exciting time. For all of these shows and I guess especially for Hotel, did you write, was there like a writer's room where you worked with the whole team or were you just at home and then would come to them with their finished script and then sort of go back and forth? Uh, one hour dramatic at that time, the, 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 uh, the late 80s, mid to late 80s, was very different than, than comedy. Comedy has a writer's room. Uh, in retrospect, I wish I had been in comedy because I think I'm much funnier now than I was then. But uh, one hour dramatic did, does not have a writer's room. What you did is you handed in an outline, which basically was every single scene and what would happen in every single scene. What soap opera today they would call a breakdown. So that was quite detailed. Then you got the approval uh, for the outline to go to script. Then when you had finished the script, you sat with all, with the other writers who were on staff and, and the two exec producers, 
and you went over it page by page, word by word, so to speak. Most of the time, the changes were cosmetic. Sometimes the changes were simply for uh, location uh, difficulties. You had to uh, change a scene uh, because we couldn't shoot outside, say. We couldn't shoot a uh, practical. We had to do it on a set. Uh, and then you hand in a second draft. You got some more notes. And that's and then it goes and then it went becomes a shooting script. Television is collaborative, and you got to put your ego aside. But my feeling was, if I put my name to something, I had to be proud of it. If it's uh, James Switzerland, then I stand by the work. And uh, I had no problem with notes. You know, it, it's sometimes when you have to restructure things, you sort of moan and groan, and oh God, this is going to be a cut and paste. But you do it. It's television, and you're being paid extremely well. To be quite honest, I was—I loved the money. I thought that was the greatest thing in the world. I was financially independent. My ego—I uh, guess my ego got in the way of uh, uh, my marriage, but we survived. We were together 46 years. But uh, Chad tells me I was uh, a pain in the ass a lot of the times, but we got through it. It was fun, Laura. I, I had a lot of fun doing it, even, even, even with the politics. And in the end, the politics was, good. you know, was just, I thought, ugly. But uh, while I was doing it, it was great fun. You know, I had a Porsche. We had a house in the hills. We had an art collection. I, I thought this was, you know, what life was supposed to be about. It was exciting. Am I sounding too much like an egotist? No, I mean it sounds it sounds great. It, it was so much fun. And I'm sure you were, you know, working hard and, you know, why not enjoy it, right? Yeah. The uh the hours were very long. But uh I was able to write scripts at home even when I was producing. Uh so uh you know, I didn't have to write them in the office, which was nice. Did you and go was, on uh, set? Yes. It's very boring. I mean, yeah. initially it's it's exciting cuz you know, it's all new. Uh, and it's it's the process is very boring. The retakes and and moving the equipment around and relighting, and uh, and then there's this you know huge table filled with too much food that you don't want to eat because you're going to get fat, and uh, and the movie stars, and some were nice and some were assholes. The cast hotel was starred uh, Connie Seliga and Jim Brolin, who's Streisand's husband. And Connie Seliger had to be one of the uh, loveliest uh, people I've ever met. She was a uh, she was a, an, an Italian girl from the Bronx, and she was absolutely breathtakingly beautiful, and this incredibly sweet, charming personality. And she was just a delight to work with. Absolutely a, a real charmer. Yeah. And Baxter. Yeah less about the writers. She had no interest in them whatsoever. Nor did Jane Wyman when I wrote for Falcon Crest. Uh, they were divas, and uh, the writers were uh, no interest in them whatsoever. But you put your ego aside, because as my father reminded me, you take the money to the bank laughing all the way. So I did. I was a practice. Did you like producing? Yeah, it was okay. Aaron was Aaron Spelling was a lovely man. Very, very generous, kind to me. The producer below him was uh, Doug Kramer. Douglas Kramer just recently passed away. He had a fabulous art collection. And Doug was the kind of uh, 
we called him Dougie, you know, sarcastically. Doug was the kind of guy who liked to light fires. And he had two sets of producers on the show. So every other every other week with someone else, another two guys in one room and, and Andrew Laskos and I in two other rooms. And so we switched off every, you know, while we were doing a script for week three, they were, uh, they were uh, shooting script for week two. So the show moved very quickly. In those days, you were doing 22 episodes for a season. Uh, they don't do mm-hmm. that as much these days. Uh, and he just liked to pit one set of people against another. So it was, the politics was not very pleasant. But, you know, it was fun to work with, with uh, the set designers and the directors and, uh, and costuming and, uh, uh, you know, hands-on. But uh, the show sort of uh, produced itself almost. I mean, you know, by, by that fifth year, you know, everyone was in the groove. Everyone knew what was expected. There were there were there were few there were few surprises. And what what was what what could be difficult was when you're uh, you're working with you uh, tried to bring in new writers who were not on staff. We had one staff writer who I had met as a uh, he had written a novel uh, a Vietnam novel and he had the same agent and I had met him at a party and then he moved to Los Angeles and. So I gave him an opportunity to pitch, and they liked his story very much. And the episode used the actor, uh, just recently passed away, he was Cambodian. He was in The Killing Fields. He got an Oscar nomination, I believe. And he was in that episode. And uh, Stephen Smith, and we ended up hiring him, and he became a staff writer for us. But when uh, we were bringing in uh, freelance writers, it it it's very difficult because if the boss doesn't like the outline, they're cut off, and they just get paid for that, and they don't get a chance to write the script. And in Hollywood, if your friends work, you work. Uh, it's very much uh, if someone does you a good deed, a good turn, I get you an assignment. It's it's important, at least it was to me, to try to reciprocate. It didn't always work out, unfortunately. You know, when I tried to get work for writers that had gotten me work, sometimes it worked out, but sometimes they were cut off, and uh, which leads to uh, to bad feelings out of my hands. I'm just I became the the bearer of bad news, unfortunately. And what did you do after Hotel? I was on Falcon Crest for one season, mm-hmm. and then I did a cable show in the very early days of cable we did 65 episodes of a adaptation of Jacqueline Suzanne's Valley of the Dog which was wonderful joke it just was wonderful joke we did that and then I went to New York and did As the World Turns which was a very unhappy experience that was basically the last show I did I saw in 2000 did you ever think about going back to writing novels? Prior to uh, selling Third Avenue, uh, rather, uh, Four Sisters, I had written a big, fat, romantic play about Walt Disney called American Creamer. And what I did was I basically took the template of his career and grafted an imaginary life and a love affair with a silent film star and then talkies uh, 
of my own imagination and followed uh, his his children and brought it up to the present. And it was just a, a big, fat family saga. And Delacorte bought it. And a month later, their lawyers told them to uh, not publish it because they were afraid of, uh, of a lawsuit. So there was nothing... There was nothing nasty about about Disney. If anything, it was it was pretty uh, It was pretty loving. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, they let me keep the advance and uh, they canceled the contract. I was not able to sell that book again, and that had required a a, a great deal of, of research in turn uh, to learn about early animation and. Uh, uh, you know, exactly how Disney made films. Uh, now there's a lot more information out about him and and, uh, and, and the work he did. But uh, when I wrote the book, there was there was only one biography, and uh, I didn't sell it. And uh, I wrote another uh, novel, and I didn't sell that either. And uh, uh, I ran out of gas, or so I say. That's why my pen has been dry. It's kind of bitter at the time when you know. When you're writing something, you're uh, you're giving it everything, and then when it's rejected, you know I'm not the only writer in the world who's been rejected. Obviously, it's uh, it's kind of it's heartbreaking, especially I think if you're if you've had success, if you've been a published writer, and then to see that you know six eight months of work or a year of work is really gone to naught, uh, it's uh, it's heartbreaking. It's uh, it's tough to deal with. So it makes you uh, doubt your own uh, uh, your own talent, your own worth. So uh, that's why I uh, I just uh, it wasn't worth it to go through that. And sadly, all those uh, manuscripts are gone. On October seventh, twenty seventeen, we were the victims of the Tubbs fire. We lost everything. We escaped literally uh, with our lives. We were surrounded by fire. And so all those unsold manuscripts and uh, all, all the pristine first editions of, of my 16 different novels, all the scripts I had written, went up in flames. It we survived. So mm-hmm. back here in House 2, you and better, and a greatly diminished library, obviously, but... Uh, uh, that's what grown-ups do. You move on. I'm so sorry that you went through that. Yeah, it was uh, it was uh, pretty horrific. Yeah, it's pretty horrific. But we survived, and my uh, my nephew resurrected uh, four four unsold scripts that I had given him to read, and so that was kind of uh, earlier this year. That was kind of life affirming. Yes, I I did write some scripts after I stopped doing television work, uh, spec scripts. I got a lot of interviews, but I was unable to sell them. But those I don't feel bad about because they didn't take that long and, and they were great fun to write. So uh, that was a great experience. I should self-publish them one day, call them dead movies. Um, how did you meet your partner? You, I mean, your husband, you said that you've been together, what, 46 years? 46 years. What was the question? How did you two meet? We met in the orgy room of a of a gay bathhouse in Los Angeles. The bathhouse was called 
8709. It was across the street from Joe Allen's, which was a Hollywood watering hole, both in New York and in L.A. Wonderfully sorted. And he was a dentist. <laughs> so it was very attractive and beside. And uh, that was a Thursday. And he came over Monday night. And Tuesday, he got the haircut I wanted. And uh, we've been together ever since. Very romantic. It uh, is. It is. It's been a... It's, uh, we've had a very good life together. It's, it's been a very good, stable relationship. Even when I was, uh, my ego got the better of me uh, when I was writing for television. But yeah, we uh, we found things we liked to do together, and uh, I turned him into a uh, bird watcher like I am, and uh, we, we've uh, we've had a lot of fun. Yeah, it's it's been a good life. Well, Bear said. Uh, a writer should live the life of the, the bourgeoisie and put their passion in, into their fiction. Uh, well, there's been plenty of passion in this relationship, but we've had a, a very stable bourgeois life in the best sense. Uh, I think that's very, you know, lucky, incredibly lucky. Incredibly um, lucky. Incredibly lucky, yeah, yeah. What was it like being a gay man, especially in the 80s when the AIDS crisis was at its peak? We lost, you know, it passed us by, but we lost some good friends. And it was, uh, it was very grim just to see uh, the, the physical deterioration and, uh, and, and the suffering that they went through. We were very close to Anthony Sabatino. He was an Emmy-winning set designer and smart, bright guy from Corpus Christi and he he and his, uh, the guy that he was seeing at the time, we had dinner every week, and we had so much fun together. And he, he, he died a horrible death. Yeah, just one of many. It was awful, and it was difficult for Chad professionally. He was a he was a dentist in Beverly Hills, and when it really uh, AIDS really broke in the news and in, uh, in everyone's consciousness, he lost a lot of patients, and he. The only time I ever saw him cry when uh, mm-hmm. people called up and said they couldn't go to his office, they were afraid of AIDS. Uh, it was a that was a very difficult time for him, but practice recovered, and uh, and Ed Asma stuck with him, and uh, Doris Roberts stuck with him, and did all right. When uh, we left LA, wanting a a quieter life, a simpler life. We had friends who uh, who had built a house up here in, in Napa, Napa County, and we were close friends with. And so after uh, I came back from New York, after that horrible gig with As the World Turns, Chad said, let's go up Christmas week and look at property. And I said, I'm not a lucky Lou. I'm not a lucky Lou. You know, we can't afford it, da, da, da. And he said, let's just see what's there. And uh, so we went up. And in like two days, we saw 43 uh, properties, mostly uh, uh, raw land, and uh, ended up uh, buying the third one we saw. And we got a loan right away and managed to uh, pay a crippling mortgage, but we did it. Uh, We did it for five years, and then we sold our house in L.A. and, uh, and built a house up here. And so we've been up here over, over tw- uh, almost 20 years. 
uh, it was a very good move for both of us. He bought a practice in Hillsburg, which is a great uh, town in uh, Sonoma County. So he had about a half hour commute through vineyards. And uh, his patients were wine makers and farmers. And uh, it just worked out very nicely for us. We were, we've been very happy here. And since you've been up there, what have you been spending your time doing? I know you're a big bird watcher, right? That's what I do most of the time. Yeah. I've been dragging him all around the world. See, we've been taking a lot of trips, you know, four or five a year. My brother had a medical business, which I helped him uh, with his scheduling and some of his book work. So that kept me busy a couple hours a week. But uh, we have a big garden, uh, vegetable garden. Uh, I'm a gentleman farmer. <laughs> Peppers and garlic. And uh, we're big Chinese food. We've been cooking Chinese food since someone bought us a wok, uh, you know, 40 years ago. And that's basically mostly, almost all the food we cook is Chinese or Indian or Thai. And so that's fun, you know, we're busy cooking and the dog and the garden and uh, life is, life is, it's a good life. It's nice. Read a lot, listen to a lot of music and drag them around the world looking uh, for the world's rarest birds. And, uh, this past year we were in uh, Papua New Guinea and uh, Chile, Costa Rica. We for Briz- Bahia in the uh, middle of January. Uh, we're going to the Moluccas at the end of the year in Indonesia. We have, like, you know, so many trips planned for the future. As long as my, I say the knees are 75, the head is 30. So as long as the knees hold out, I'll be all right. Those trips sound amazing. They are. They, they are great fun. They make me feel young, Laura. It's, uh, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere. Uh, you're sort of testing yourself. It's no creature comforts. But then you're seeing, A, how people really live in these countries because you're out in the rural boonies. And B, you're seeing uh, the remnants of wildlife. And, you know, we've seen birds that made, there were only 10 left in the world. We've managed to see them. Uh, you know, 10 individual of one species on the verge of extinction. It's, I find it kind uh, of awe-inspiring. It's... Uh, I can't get over it, the variety. You know, there are almost 11,000 species of birds in the world. I've, I've seen over 5,000 of them, and I want to see the rest before I move on. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's hard to comprehend, you know, for me, you know, the idea of seeing one of ten. I know. It's, it's, it's extraordinary, you know, to be out there. And... and and probably now there are less than 10 of that particular bird. Uh, mm-hmm. Or to see a bird that, you know, there may be 50 pairs left in the world. And, you know, they're not, they're hard to find. And then, and then to see them, and some of them are just spectacularly beautiful, like these birds of paradise. I mean, I felt like it was a National Geographic documentary. I thought David Attenborough was over my shoulder. I mean, you know, I, I looked at some of his footage when we came back and I said, God, we saw that same thing. That bowerbird doing the same thing. You know, there it is. It's, uh, I love it. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I get in the zone. It's, it's, to me, it's to get outside myself. Uh, I'm, and it's thrilling. In the way that I found uh, writing thrilling. Uh, so that's, you know, you say, what, what do I do since I'm not writing? 
and that's that gives me that endorphin rush that uh, that writing fiction did. I had to write every day; otherwise, I felt a I felt tremendously guilty. But B, you know, to have fifty pages at the end at Friday night, you know, I had this wonderful sense of accomplishment. You know, and I was, you know, I was on, I was on my own. No one else. I, you know, my parents were not rich. I didn't have money from them. I had to make a living and had to survive. I had to pay the rent. I did what grown-ups do. I try to be responsible. Of all of those books that you wrote, were any of them more autobiographical? Did you bring in any aspects of your own life? Crown Heights was. Crown Heights was totally autobiographical. Four sisters. I sort of reimagined my mother's three younger sisters. My mother had her three younger sisters. And so, uh, again, using that word template, uh, I took those four women and uh, and moved them into 1890s, 1900s Russia, remembering the quirks of each of my aunts and trying to build character on 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 the bones of those of those four women. Uh, so, I don't know if it was autobiographical, but it certainly came came from my past. I did write a, a novel. Uh, called Natural Acts, which was about a gay custody case long before that was in the news. My timing seems to be off, uh, which uh, I guess was based on on uh, being Chad as the major characters adopting a, a friend's child who's who's uh, dying of cancer. She wants us to raise the little girl and uh, her fundamentalist uh, uh, effect. Yes, yeah, so that was. I guess that was autobiographical. Uh, the the uh, the plays I would you know starring was uh, was one I had great fun with. It uh, I sort of reimagined Streisand and Nichols and May and Sondheim and uh, Lenny Bruce as twenty year olds starting a uh, kind of a second city uh, comedy troupe and then then their lives uh, crossing and recrossing and separating. That was great fun. That's that sold well too. And I, I really enjoyed writing that book. Once your you know, your writing career took off, were your parents proud of it? I know that they, you know, previously wanted you to, you know, be a doctor, but were they proud of the your writing career? Oh, that's that's the best question. Uh between books my father uh said, Well, if you hadn't quit medical school you wouldn't have a seasonal career. And that, that line, a seasonal career, has uh, followed me for 50 years. Now it makes me smile. He, he would bring up Michael Crichton and uh, the guy who wrote Coma, I forget his name, Robinson, mm-hmm. and, and say, well, look at them. Look at Michael Crichton. He's still a doctor and he's writing. I think that, I, yes, I think they were proud of me. Uh, uh, my mother liked Third Avenue of all the books I had written. I think they were more thrilled to see my name on television. They didn't miss a single episode. And I wrote 20 episodes of Hotel. They didn't miss a single one. They were proud to see my name on the screen. I was too. It was, it was, uh, my father didn't talk to me for, uh, for six months after I quit medical school. Not that it broke my heart, uh, to be quite honest, but he didn't. My mother gave me $500 so I could do a down payment in an apartment. Uh, so I lived in a it was 11 by 17 on 84th off 2nd. I was on the 2nd floor. Looked out 
called the schoolyard. It was a great little apartment. And uh, it was $134 a month. I was making $99 a week take home as a social worker. At the same desk I had as a child. And I sat at that desk with my Smith Corona typewriter and typed away every night. It was not a garret <laughs> by any means, but it was, but it was a, a small apartment with a pull-out couch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You put in the hours and you made it work. You had to put in the hours. That yeah, that was uh, yeah. I had a I had a good work ethic, but but you know, as I uh, to be redundant, uh, repeating myself, I loved doing. I was happy doing. It it seemed that was the thing that I was meant to do. That I said I would do, and uh, and by God, I did it. Yeah, I know. I look back and I see all these titles. You know, I did. Oh oh, you asked the autobiographical novel. Yes, I did one absolutely autobiographical novel under a pseudonym. It was the fourth book I wrote and the second book I sold. It's called Jigsaw. And the pseudonym was Jeffrey Linden with a G. And it was basically my attempt as a writer to figure out why I was gay. Because in those days, it wasn't just genetics. She thought it was upbringing. You know, we really didn't know why people were gay. Now I, I believe people are gay because they're born gay. But, you know, when I was 22 years old, I didn't know why I was gay. And so I attempted to find out by writing this novel, which was, I, I, I did it like a, a pickup sticks. I, uh, I jumbled the chronology but kept it going forward. So it went back and forth in time. And, uh, and I sold that as a trade paperback to Avon. And uh, uh, then Avon ended up buying, you know, four or five more of my, uh, of my novels under my own name. So, yes, uh, I did write an autobiographical book. It's called Jigsaw, and I'm sure you can find it on any books. Yeah. That pseudonym did not come up in any of my research, so I will. <laughs> oh, very good. It's G-E-O-S-F-R-E-Y, Linden, L-I-N-D-E-N. Who knows? I may disavow it if I read. <laughs> yeah, I found, I mean, I knew that you wrote some of the, Nick, you know, three Nick Carter books, and then I found, like, the pseudonyms. <laughs> Um, Janine Fitzpatrick and J.F. Farber. I was James Farber. I was J.F. Forrest. J.F. Let's see. I was J.S. Forrester. I was J.F. Farber. I was Janine Fitzpatrick. Yeah. And uh, uh, Janine Fitzpatrick wrote uh, two gothics, which uh, is a genre that no one seems to do anymore. Uh, J.F. Farber wrote about a fancy uh, uh, beauty parlor with a Cuban stud who owned it. Uh, J.S. Forrester wrote two V.C. Andrews-type novels, which sold hardcover in Britain, and I recently uh, located copies of those. Uh, James Farber wrote two horror novels, also sold in England as well. Jeffrey Linden wrote Jigsaw, and uh, I did a techno-thriller with uh, Frank, uh, Frank Glitzman, the producer of Trapper John, called The Unicorn Affair. So all told, of 16 books plus uh, three Nick Carters. Yeah. I look um, back and I think, wow, that's, uh, that's pretty good, Jim. It's quite amazing. I was trying to, you know, pull together a list. And, you know, you did so many different genres. Did Were there any genres that you enjoyed more than others? Or was it sort of a, a I, fun practice uh, trying different ones? Again, I'm a hired guy. You know, 
when I uh, got the assignment to do the Nick Carters, they 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 were published under the name Nick Carter, but there was like the Hardy Boys, there were a stable of writers doing them. I went out and books on uh, on karate, uh, so that Nick Carter would be a karate expert, and I sort of you know incorporated what I'd seen in those books. And I had done I had traveled uh, around the world with my brother when I was 24, and so I was able to use those exotic locations. We had we had been. Uh, you know, to Bangkok and, and Kathmandu and Kabul. And so I used uh, my memory of, of those places uh, in those Nick Carter novels, which worked out real well. I liked doing the, the horror novels were fun. They were, they were very different. Uh, I didn't like the gothics particularly. That's what I'm hired to do. And so I do a good job. I, I tried to do a good job. I don't know. I, I, I was always happy just writing, you know, to me, the hardest part was was plotting. You know, once I, I worked from very detailed outlines, and basically sold books on the basis of very very detailed outlines. Four seasons, uh, four sisters rather. I had like a hundred page outline, so I knew where where the book was going, plot wise. So you're filling in the blanks, but you're also trying to build character, and that's equally difficult. Trying to make you know ten different people. Sound different, look not only look different, but sound different and, and be recognizable on the page. Utilizing, you know, Tolstoy utilized lots of little physical quirks, you know, upturned lips and this and that. And he talked about characters and kept repeating that. And I tried to use that in, in the Russian novel uh, the same way to keep reminding the reader of who these people are, you know, when you have such a big canvas. But that to me was the hardest the hardest part of writing. Once I had a plot, I was, I was okay. Uh, I had the roadmap. But uh, building character, I found very difficult. Uh, that, that, was, that, that was tough work. You mentioned earlier that you met Jean Nidich, or Nidich, I don't know how you pronounce it, Nidich, uh, the founder of Late Watchers. Did she know you were writing about her, or did the idea to write about yeah. her come after she, you met her? She did know. She did know. And uh, she did not object to it. I think she was, uh, she never complimented me on it, but she never complained about it. And it was, it was, it was somewhat autobiographical. I guess she could have complained, but I made her, you know, she was a, a strong woman who succeeded. And that sounds very 2022, but in 1977, you know, that phrase wasn't even in the language, a strong woman. And it was, it was a book about a strong woman who, who builds a business. I enjoyed doing that. I, I utilized uh, my, the Brooklyn neighborhood. And so she, the novel starts in the same neighborhood I grew up in. You know, as a writer, you're just trying to, you know, use as many pieces of, of, of your life as possible to bring some sense of reality to what's on, on the printed page. But she never complained about it. I had uh, done a very short attempt at the book of a musical based on her life called Pound for Pound. But uh, we got that to Steve Sondheim's agent, but it never went anywhere. I don't have a copy of that anymore, unfortunately. But uh, that was fun. I was, uh, I liked musical comedy when I was in my 20s. Wouldn't that be great to, to write the book of one? I think it would have made a great musical. Yeah, I think it would have too. She was, she was a real character. She um, was a real character. She was, she was, uh, she was a, a, a tough gal. I liked her though. She had a uh, she 
he had a kind of Ethel Merman-esque quality, uh, bigger than life. And uh, she had, you know, in her heyday, she really had great, great success. I'm sure she sold that company for well over six figures. Yeah. She did well for herself. I enjoyed your, your book about, your book based on her. Oh, I'm glad. I haven't actually read Third Avenue yet, so I didn't realize that it was based on Bloomingdale. Well, in the sense of it's the story about a a big uh, how a department store becomes you know from how a peddler starts a department store. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked I liked the expansiveness of 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 a, of a big fat read. Fred Mustard Stewart uh, was a writer in the in the seventies and eighties who had. Uh, great success doing those kind of books. And uh, he started writing uh, first a uh, couple of horror novels, but then uh, the last part of his career, he wrote these big family sagas. And I thought my books, were, were if, if one would place them in a genre, they were similar to his. You know, he did a very clever uh, novel right after Rosemary's Baby called The Mephisto Waltz. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it was made into a movie, I believe, with Alan Alda. But, yeah, I've seen the movie. I don't know. Yeah, he had an interesting career as well. Yeah. Has there been anything we didn't cover? I mean, this has been super interesting. We we lost our beloved border terrier 15 years last year, and Leo was the kind of dog that I described as he could not put his foot down wrong. So now we have we have a tough little cousin of his who's giving me a handful to deal with. Now, we've had border terriers for like, you know, since we met each other. That was the that was the dog we got together. Other than that, I think you've covered it nicely. I have a good relationship with my older brother. He's going to be 80 in March. We're giving him a big party in Boston. And uh, I speak to him every day. He's uh, my second best friend uh, after my husband. All the... Uh, Light, the the hurts, uh, the disappointments, fade away. I let them go. It, I can't hold on to what could have been. Uh, I can't hold on to if I was mistreated. You know, if this happened career, just talking career wise. Let go of, of of that as the years have gone on because it it doesn't serve me well at all. So I. I take pride in what I managed to accomplish, and uh, and I'm glad that I'm pretty much a happy guy at the moment. I mean, uh, I didn't turn into a bitter old man. And again, the head is 30. You know, I I can't deal with getting older. I, my head is 30. I want to see the world. Well, it seems like you're doing all of the things that, you know, keep you young, like traveling and, you know, experiencing new things. I think so. I hope so. Laura, it's been lovely talking to you. Like it's like opening up the little little boxes and, and, and looking down into the past and uh, reviewing, remembering. I haven't done that. So uh, uh, thank you for uh, uh, giving me the opportunity to share uh, uh, past highlights of my peripatetic career. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with James Fritzhound. On the website, I've put together a slideshow of images of James's work and a short bio. I have recorded a ton of really great interviews, which will be coming out soon. Everyone from actors, artists, illustrators, fashion designers, writers. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. All episode materials are available at sizewhispers.com. Whispers.com.